welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Gileadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 16, Attributes of Jehovah God of Israel. Tonight, our last lecture is going to be Isaiah's testimony of the Savior, his testimony of Jehovah, and uh, Jehovah of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, can be shown to be that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 in a literary structure that I found that shows that Isaiah 53 graphically portrays the descent phase of Jehovah and then his second coming in glory is his ascent phase that follows after. So we'll start off with discussing the different attributes of Jehovah and we're only selectively picking out a few things because Isaiah, the whole book, is a testimony of, of God and of, of, of the salvation and, and the restoration of Israel and the establishment of Zion. And Well, Isaiah has spoke about all things, as Jesus said, past, present, future, but particularly relating to the end time. And I have to preface these, the night's lecture by reminding us again that Isaiah's is an end time scenario. Even Isaiah 53, which portrays Christ's sufferings on our behalf is actually someone else quoting or talking about Christ rather than someone in the end time talking about Christ rather than actually a historical account of how it will be. It's not a historical account. Isaiah's is an end time message and that's the key that Jesus gives in 3 Nephi 23. All things that he spake have been and shall be and also in the literary structures of Isaiah that I've been able to uncover, they show that Isaiah is an end time scenario. Besides whatever happened historically, that acts as an allegory or a type and shadow of the end time. So before we get going, let's keep that in mind so we don't slip back into the habit of thinking, well, this is just historical or something like that. First of all, let's start off with Jehovah as the creator and the begetter, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the begetter of his people and of us individuals. Who measured out the waters with the hollow of his hand, from Isaiah 40, and gauged the heavens by the span of his fingers? Who compiled the earth's dust by measure, weighing mountains and scales, hills in a balance? Now we also learn through Isaiah that mountains and hills are nations, but, that's, but basically this is talking on a primary level of the earth's creation from, from dust and from waters, cosmic waters and cosmic dust. So it's not creation ex nihilo or out of nothing. And it also shows that we who are our bodies that gain our, we who gain our physical bodies from the earth are also made up of dust and waters or the elements and waters, the basic elements. So we too are a creation, as we'll see in a moment, as, as, these, as this creation of Isaiah gets more and more specific and focused on a people of God and their salvation and exaltation. Isaiah 45, Thus says Jehovah who created the heavens, the God who formed the earth, who made it secure and organized it, not to remain a chaotic waste, but designed it to be inhabited. So this sphere is an, an, inhab, it's an habitable earth and it was made for that purpose by our Lord. Also from 45, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. With I with my hand suspended the heavens, appointing all their hosts. 
So the next step after creating the earth to be a habitable place is to create man upon the earth. And he and his hand are involved in this creation. Now, in the book of Isaiah, there are two hands, the Lord's left hand and right hand, and the Lord's right hand is his servant, his end-time servant. And so this end-time servant then had something to do with the creation of the heavens and the earth in some pre-mortal um, some premortal action. And the word appoint signifies... Um, thank you for sitting down. The word appoint <clears throat> uh, signifies that these people have now attained an exalted level who are identified as the host of heaven, which means and it implies that before coming to the earth, there were some who were on an exalted level. And we see that in the book of Abraham, where there were certain noble and great ones who came to the earth, both to grow here further in their progression, but also to provide st stability and balance to others and to act as a, a stabilizing and teaching influence on the, for the rest of humanity. So there are different spiritual levels that come to the earth, some on higher levels and some on lower levels, all progressing forward. Isaiah 42 Thus is Jehovah God, who frames and suspends the heavens, who gives form to the earth and its creatures, the breath of life to the people upon it, spirit to those who walk in it. Now it's getting more specific, so we see that he creates both the earth and the creatures. He's the one who gives them the form. We are not humanoids, we're not extraterrestrials, we're specifically grounded on this earth <coughs> that he has created for us, for, for us. Isaiah 40, lift your eyes heavenward and see who formed these. These, in Hebrew, is Eleh, and Eleh means gods. Who formed gods, in a way? It's just another meaning, a, um, a mystical meaning, I guess, an esoteric meaning of the word. He who brings forth their hosts by number, calling each one by name, because he's almighty and all-powerful, not one is unaccounted for. Now, the calling by name is a divine appointment to minister to, on a higher spiritual level. It also signifies that the person who is, who is appointed and called has risen to a new spiritual level closer to God's image and likeness. And he now receives, or she receives a new calling. And the name is the new name that is given every time somebody ascends to a higher level. But these are the hosts of heaven, so they signify exalted beings. Celestial, celestial category. This is from, Isaiah 37 is from Hezekiah's prayer during his illness. Um, I think, no, it's during the Syrian siege of Jerusalem when he's praying for the city's deliverance. O Jehovah of hosts, God of Israel, who sits enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. It is you who made the heavens and the earth. So we go from the heavens and the earth to humanity, to those higher realms who are also ministering here, and then kingdoms or, or nations. And Jehovah is the one who's over all of them. 43, I, Jehovah, your holy one, creator of Israel, am your king. He is the king. We need to remember that he's our king, not some other. Always keep that in mind. If he's king, he's also ruling over us, 
and is concerned for us and is our covenant Lord, will protect us, will provide for us, will do everything that a king should do. He's also Israel's holy one so that a sanctified being is one in whom we can place our trust. Isaiah 65. See, I create new heavens and a new earth. Former events shall not be remembered or recalled to mind. Rejoice then and be glad forever in what I create. See, I create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Now we're progressing further and further and further into an elect people becoming a people of God and being recreated on a celestial level. A new heavens, a new earth, and they then become the abode or the, the habitable place for the Lord's people on that level. And it is one of joy, not like the current earth or realm in which we live, which is full of fraught with hazards and misery and, and the, the wickedness of people. But this will be a place of joy for everyone who is there. And this shows how this nation of God's people, Zion, is born. Isaiah 66. Before she's in labor, she gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. Who has heard the like who, or who has seen such things? Can the earth labor by the day and a nation be born at once? For as soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to a crisis and not bring on birth, says Jehovah, when it is I who caused the birth? Shall I hinder it, says your God? So this shows that the end time scenario, however, is not all rosy, but there is opposition involved. Even some are trying to hinder the birth or cause it not to happen. And they're opposing the birth of Zion. And it, it's a crisis. And it's a, it's a crisis that tests God's people and also tests the wicked to see which way they're going to go. So Zion goes into labor. Well, before she goes into labor, she delivers a son or a deliverer. As Israel gave birth to Moses when Israel was in bondage in Egypt. And then when the, the deliverer, Moses, tried to free Israel, then she went into labor. Israel went into labor because Pharaoh put hard taskmasters over them and made them serve with rigor and, and, and triply enslaved them from what they had before. And so this day, can the earth labor by the day, we see the whole earth goes into labor, the Lord's people go into labor, and individuals, all of us, go into labor, so to speak. Everybody's birthing or trying to birth. Some will abort the birth. Most of them will abort the birth. But actually, a nation of Zion will be born in that day, in the end time. So we see this as an end-time scenario. And a whole nation will be born at once. Those are the Lord's covenant people who are the house of Israel by definition all through the scriptures in Isaiah as well. Isaiah 6.3. So this whole process is what is the purpose of God's creation from the beginning to the end. Most holy is Jehovah of hosts. The consummation of all the earth is his glory. So the consummation of the whole work of humanity's progression, of the earth's ascending to a higher state itself, to a millennial glory, all of that is God is behind it. God is the initiator of it and the finisher of the work. 
Jehovah's covenant maker. Isaiah 43. But now, thus is Jehovah who formed you, O Jacob, who created you, O Israel. So, part of the creation, the ongoing creation of the heavens and the earth is this idea of Jacob and Israel being created and being recreated till they eventually become a Zion or an elect level. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you, because in that day, in the end time, there will be much to fear. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Again, the calling by name is a covenant, is a covenant phenomenon. It implies that these people have a covenant relationship with the Lord. Isaiah 54, he who espouses here, and that is the husband-wife relationship that signifies a covenant relationship with Jehovah, is your maker, the creator, whose name is Jehovah of hosts. He who redeems you is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Now remember that because the idea of a God of all the earth is, go is going to become very important because of the impostors, the impersonators that are going to come in the near future, as we saw in the lecture that we had on evil spirits. And it's going to become a toss-up. Many people will be deceived and deluded by false claimants. So remember that Jehovah, the God of Israel, is the God and the King of all the earth. And that you have to keep trusting in Him in spite of whatever appears, all through the end-time afflictions and trials and challenges, and the horrendous opposition and persecution that will take place. That's why I keep saying, don't fear, don't fear. Jehovah calls you back as a spouse forsaken and forlorn, a wife married in youth only to be rejected, says your God. This defines the house of Israel, those who rejected the gospel anciently, the Jews, the ten tribes, Lehi's descendants, and other ethnic communities, among whom Zion is established in the end time. And we are the ones who help them to establish it. That is our role. So they are the spouse that is, was forsaken because of apostasy that is now taken back. And the current spouse, there's two wives that Jehovah has in Isaiah 54 in the beginning of the chapter. The current spouse chooses to be divorced. She's the one who now apostatizes and she's the one who's now rejected and the former spouse is received back. So the idea in Isaiah of one spouse, a covenant people, divides into two spouses, into two cities, into two covenants. And you can see that in my books where I analyze that, as in my book, The Literary Message of Isaiah. This is to me as in the days of Noah. Well, that's the time we're entering right now. When I swore that the waters of Noah would no more flood the earth. Well, I dare say from all the descriptions that worse than the flood of old is going to happen in our day. So I swear to have no more anger toward you, never again to rebuke you. For the mountains shall be removed and the hills collapse with shaking. That's in the end time, equivalent of the flood anciently. But my charity or my covenant love, is what that signifies, toward you shall never be removed, nor my covenant of peace be shaken. You see charity is in parallel there, a synonymous parallel with covenant of peace. Be shaken, says Jehovah, who has compassion on you. Now remember the word peace because it is an important word all through the book of Isaiah and we'll soon see who's the one who creates this peace. Not human peace like the ambassadors of peace among politicians, but this is God's peace, the true, real peace, which we've never seen before 
except in Zion societies. So the mountains shall be removed and the hills collapse with shaking is physical, but it also signifies nations. As mountains is a metaphor for nations and kingdoms in Isaiah. And so they are going to be shaken up. The entire world is going to be shaken up worse than the days of the flood. Isaiah 55. Give ear and come unto me, pay heed that your souls may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my loving fidelity toward David. Now there is a collective covenant that is the Sinai covenant. And the Sinai covenant is a conditional covenant, which if a people collectively will, will live it and obey it, that covenant becomes unconditional. But that never ever happened with Israel. And all the other covenants of the Lord are designed to bring people to that level of an unconditional collective covenant. But on the way there, one of the props, one of the individual covenants is that is the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with King David. And in the end time, all these covenants are again reemerge and become relevant to God's people's restoration in the end time. And the everlasting covenant is an unconditional covenant with the Lord's servant, the latter-day David in the end time. And with all of the 144,000 whom one might, might call little Davids. They're all Davidic kings in that sense under the terms of the Davidic covenant. As Christ was a Davidic king under the terms of the Davidic covenant on a higher spiritual level. Because here we're talking about temporal deliverance whereas on Christ's level we're talking about spiritual salvation. But it's all the same, the pattern is always the same, that of a, pro of a proxy savior or proxy saviors on different spiritual levels. See, I have appointed him as a witness to the nations. This is in the end time. So he's going to have power and authority over all the nations on the earth prior to the coming of the Lord. Because in Isaiah, all of this happens before the coming of the Lord or Jehovah in power and great glory as a preparation so that a people of Zion might be established to whom the Lord can then come. I have appointed them. There's that word appoint again as he ascends to a higher spiritual level, in this case on a translated level, so he has the sealing power, as a witness to the nations because one who has the sealing power or the spirit and power of Elijah, as Joseph Smith called it, um, ministers on an international level to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, as do all the 144,000. A prince and lawgiver of the peoples, of all the nations. Now, he's not the same lawgiver that Jehovah is, but he's a lawgiver like Moses, but also ministering the higher law of the gospel to prepare a people of God to meet their Savior. You will summon a nation, now addressing the servant, the latter-day David, you will summon a nation that you did not know. To know is to have a covenant relationship with. So a people who had no covenant relationship with him now uh, accept him for who he is because they recognize in him that he is the emissary of the Lord. You will summon a nation that you did not know, a nation that did not know you will hasten to you because of Jehovah your God, the Holy One of Israel, who gloriously endows you. Because once he goes through his descent phase of being marred and then healed, the Lord empowers him and he becomes a translated being like Elijah, Moses, John the Revelator, 
um, Enoch and, all, and others who cannot be harmed. They cannot be marred again. Once they're translated, they cannot be marred or hurt again. So it's a glorious endowment to have that happen to you. Isaiah 56. For thus says Jehovah, as for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose to do what I will, holding fast to my covenant, to them will I give a hand clasp and a name within the walls of my house that is better than sons and daughters. I will endow them with an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now this too is an unconditional covenant with certain servants of God who thought in context, in the historical context of Isaiah 56, who thought because they're eunuchs and, and lackeys in the courts of the king's house in Israel, that they were not the same as the covenant people they were not deserving. In other words, transpose that to the end time, and there are those of us who come through the Gentile lineages, though we have smatterings of the house of Israel, such as Ephraim, and possibly other, tri other tribes of Israel. And then you have the Jews who have kept their ethnic lineage and traditions, and Lamanites who are ethnic peoples, and the ten tribes who, by a parallel or analogy, are also ethnic groups here and there. But we are not, we, we assimilated into the Gentiles as, I, as Ch Hosea chapter 7 verse 8 says. So we may have the idea that we're less, but actually we can be more or can be, end up on an equal place if we keep the Sabbaths of the Lord and hold fast to his covenant. That is the new covenant, but it's also the Davidic covenant. And holding fast to the Lord's covenant is also holding fast to the servant, uh, as it says here, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my loving fidelity toward David. And then the next few scriptures in, in a little while also explain that a little more. So it also implies that we must sustain the servant because if you don't, he's like the Moses that mediates the collective covenant with the Lord's people. And if we don't accept his servant, then we don't accept the Lord. To them will I give a hand clasp and a name. And that signifies ascension or accession to a higher spiritual level. It's royal accession. A name that is better than sons and daughters. And it's interesting because in the book Visions of Glory, Spencer talks about that those who were translated during their ministry don't have sons and daughters. But they're going to receive a name better than sons and daughters an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. While the majority of God's people in the end time, who are now God's people, their names will be cut off, as Isaiah makes abundantly clear in the rest of his book. And look up the word cut off. It's uh, all through the scriptures, for example, in the Book of Mormon as well. And you'll see that God's people of the end time stand in great danger of being cut off from his presence and from being cut off from his people, from his covenant people. Isaiah 51, 16. I will put my words in your mouth and shelter you in the shadow of my hand while I replant the heavens and set the earth in place that I may say to Zion, you are my people. So this comes on the heel of cataclysmic destruction in the earth. And the Lord is going to, through all of that cataclysmic destruction, protect his people. Protect his people who are of Zion, not everybody. In fact, the destruction is meant to take out the wicked so that only Zion will be left. 
And you look under shelter and shadow or shade in chapter 4, and you see that they're protected under the cloud of glory in that chapter. The earth is going, the earth is going to be replanted or reestablished because the earth is going to be jolted out of place in the Lord's day of wrath, as in chapter 13. So now the earth is going to be put back in place or in a new place. That's why you have the new heavens and the new earth. That I may say to Zion, you are my people, because that is the covenant formula. You are my people, I am your God. That means that these people are living up to all the terms of the covenant and now are being accepted formally and unconditionally as the Lord's covenant people, collectively, which has never happened before. Not in Moses' time, not in Christ's time, and not since then. Oops. Isaiah 57. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Jehovah. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have placed in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of their offspring, says Jehovah, from now on and forever. Again, this is part of the Lord's unconditional covenant. It harks back to the Lord's Levitical covenant, his choosing of the Levites to be priests and ministers and teachers to his people, and so they received an extra portion of his spirit by which they could be inspired to teach the people. But now that is going to be a covenant across the board for all who are on the Zion level. Everybody will have the Spirit of God to be with them so that they don't need to teach every man his neighbor anymore. Say, you know, follow the Lord because everybody will know his law and his word in their hearts and in their minds. In fact, this is part of the unconditional millennial covenant that incorporates all the positive features of former covenants that the Lord has made. It was with Abraham, with the, in the Sinai covenant, the Levitical covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the, the covenant with Noah, and any other covenant that he has made, and covenants that he makes in the end time with his servants, all of these covenants will now coalesce, so to speak, into one composite covenant with his elect. And it's unconditional. It means that everybody has passed the conditional aspects, have gone through their descent phases that tested them, and now these covenants become un this covenant becomes unconditional. It's forever, worlds without end. It's a wonderful place to arrive at. Jehovah, God of justice. And we must not forget that Jehovah is the same as he was in the Old Testament. Some say, well, the Jehovah of the, of the Old Testament is a cruel God. It's, He's a harsh God. And Jehovah of the New Testament is a merciful God and a forgiving God. Yes, but he's the same God. And those who don't repent will have the same justice meted out to them. And only those who repent and keep his commandments, to them he can show mercy. And indeed he does. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. These are just different nuances or emphases of his attributes. Isaiah 3, Jehovah will take a stand and contend with them, that is, with whom he mentions now. He has arisen to judge the nations. He will bring to trial the elders of his people and their rulers and say to them, It is you who have devoured the vineyard. You fill your houses by depriving the needy. What do you mean by oppressing my people, humbling the faces of the poor, says Jehovah of hosts. Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel in his in his, in his almighty power, he commands all the hosts of heaven, and you are going to do this, you know, in his presence, 
and oppresses people? Oppress my people, meaning my covenant people. You are my people, I'm your God. And look at the parallel uh, statement that says, humbling the faces of the poor. So my people is in parallel with the poor. So who are his people? The poor are. Not the rich who have been depriving the poor. Not the rich who are milking the masses and giving themselves fat salaries and all the rest of it, both the spiritual and the ecclesiastical and the political, both. And in the process, they are devouring the vineyard because the, the vineyard is both political and religious or ecclesiastical. So they're actually the problem because it is the apostasy and the wickedness of, of God's people and their leaders that bring on the end time judgment, that bring on the day of judgment. And from there, it spreads to, the, to all the nations of the world. Isaiah 9. So when calamities start to happen, which are covenant curses, then you think it would turn people around, they would repent and get their acts together? Apparently not. The people do not turn back to him who smites them, nor will they inquire of Jehovah of hosts. What's going on? Let's pray and find out. No. Therefore, Jehovah will cut off from Israel head and tail, palm top and reed in a single day. That's the day of judgment. The, the period of time lasting several years, in the book of Isaiah, it's about three years, where the Lord destroys the wicked and delivers the righteous. The elders or notables are the head, the prophets who teach falsehoods the tale. The leaders of these people have misled them, and those who are led are confused. So again, we see that the political and the ecclesiastical are on a parallel in the book of Isaiah. And both are going to be smitten equally in that day because the people are being confused by what's being taught them. People are confused by events. They don't know what's going on. Things are done underhandedly, behind their backs. As Isaiah 52 says, my people are taken over without price. They're made, taken captive, both politically and ecclesiastically. Isaiah 22, Jehovah of hosts, reveal this to my ears. Such wickedness cannot be forgiven you till you die, says my Lord, Jehovah of hosts. The context of that is, in Isaiah 22, is people having a good time and partying. The whole law of God has become watered down for them. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have power enough, sufficient for them to conquer the evil and their temptations. It has been dumbed down so much that people, it, you know, they, it, it has little meaning for them anymore. And therefore, they've given themselves over to wickedness because they forgot that it's not the leaders that they're answerable to, but they're answerable to God directly themselves. 42. Who is it that hands Jacob over to plunder and Israel to the spoilers, if not Jehovah? against whom we have sinned. For they have no desire to walk in his ways or obey his law. So in the heat of his anger, he pours out on them the violence of war till it envelops them in flames. Yet they remain unaware till it sets them on fire that they take it not to heart. They don't make the connection between their actions and what's happening to them. They'll say, well, you know, it's the enemies, the bad guys, and, they're, and we're the victims, or these are natural calamities, or... Uh, the, they don't make the connection. That's all because of their own wickedness and transgressions. Because they don't see themselves in the light of transgressors. When they're spiritually blinded, they don't make that connection. They'll never get it. 
28, and this is a chapter that addresses Ephraim specifically, both the political and ecclesiastical. And when the Lord does a new thing, sends his servant to warn them, to warn Ephraim, they take it lightly and scoff. And so in the end, the Lord says, scoff not, lest your bonds grow severe, because the bonds of wickedness have got these guys in their grip. For I have heard utter destruction decreed by my Lord Jehovah of hosts upon the whole earth. The destruction is coming, and you are the cause of it. And when you scoff, you just tighten those bands of wickedness more and more. And your, your spiritual blindness grows, so you just can't see it at all. And you become subject to it as much or more than anyone else, to this destruction. Something you never anticipated. 26. For now will Jehovah come out of his dwelling place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquities, the earth will uncover the bloodshed upon it and no more conceal it slain. So we have there the blood idea in Isaiah's the heights of injustice. So we see that the injustices of the earth and among God's people, as in chapter 1 of Isaiah, it starts off talking about injustices and blood, talking directly to the Lord's people. So the Lord's people are going to become so evil that they too, as, Isaiah, as Matthew 24 uh, states where Jesus is predicting the end time that those who slay you or kill you will think they do God a service. And that's going to be among the Lord's own people. And so, of course, it's worldwide. It's already happening worldwide, but it's going to come among us as well. Because the ultimate form of apostasy, to get a people to rise to a translated level, they're going to have horrendous opposition to provide stepping stones to get them there. And who are going to provide these stepping stones of opposition? The Lord's own people in their apostate state, in their increasingly apostate state. And as we discussed in the previous lecture, that the ultimate form of apostasy is satanic cult. Isaiah 30. Behold, Jehovah omnipotent coming from afar, his wrath is kindled, heavy is his grievance, his lips flow with indignation. His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like a raging torrent that severs at the neck. He comes to sift the nations in the civil falsehood. With an erring bridle on their jaws, he will try the peoples. Now think about it. He's letting falsehoods and lies and darkness and all the rest of it, deceptions, just, he's letting them reign free in this end time because the people have had access to the truth. And if they would have turned to the truth earlier and repented and not thought themselves the good guys in every scenario, then they would have been more savvy to what's going on now with them. And then you have the idea in the book of Isaiah that these terms, wrath, grievance, indignation, tongue, fire, breath, torrent, that these are terms, metaphorical terms of pseudonyms or aliases of the Antichrist, of the king of Assyria the king of Babylon in the end time. So the Lord himself is not this vengeful God. He's going to do all this vengeance and wreak it upon the earth, but he's going to use the king of Assyria as his instrument to do so. That's why Isaiah, Isaiah likens him to a new flood, the sea in commotion heaving itself beyond its bounds, or the river in flood sweeping everything before it. And we have a Book of Mormon example of Shiz. He sweeps the earth before him. He annihilates entire peoples, as we've seen in previous lectures. His purpose is to annihilate and exterminate nations, not a few. <coughs> Chapter 10 of Isaiah. 
So he's going to do it. And he's going to sift the nations because he will have very charismatic appeal. And so will many other false claimants. And he's going to sorely try those who are the Lord's people and try systematically to destroy them as Hitler tried with the Jews in World War II and as the kings of Assyria did in Hezekiah's time when they surrounded Jerusalem and tried to wipe them out, tried to wipe out the city of Jerusalem. And this is the other aspect of the Lord. Isaiah 55, Inquire of Jehovah while he is present. Call upon him while he is near. Now this is the end time. It's when the servant performs his mission and the servant and his associates, the other servants of the Lord, John calls them the 144,000, but they are in Isaiah equally. And that is the time when the Lord is drawing near. Not in his official coming in glory, but present among those elect who are making sure they're calling election. So he's going to come very nigh to those who are making sure they call an election. And he's going to manifest himself to them in many numerous individual instances. So that is the time from the time the servant begins his mission, like the latter-day Enoch, or latter-day John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. During that time, many will be making sure they call an election. And the servant's ministry, plural servant's ministry, is a time that facilitates this. It greatly facilitates it. Let the wicked forsake their ways and sinful men their thoughts. Well, the people of Enoch were wicked and sinful. They were full of abominations, but eventually they became a Zion people. Think about that as a paradigm or an example for us. Same with the people of Melchizedek. Let them return to Jehovah and he will have mercy on them. The word return in Hebrew is the same word as repent. So here, mercy... The attribute of mercy comes on the heels of repentance. It doesn't come any other way. Justice still has to be paid. The price of justice still has to be paid. Who's going to pay it? Well, the Lord himself is for those who repent. Then can mercy have sway, and then we can we qualify for mercy. But if we haven't repented when that day of calamity comes, we're going to have to go through all the things that we brought upon ourselves. The covenant curses that have occurred all that time to our God who graciously pardons to our God our covenant God who pardons graciously 43 it is I myself and for my own sake who blot out your offenses remembering your sins no more now remember this because it is Jehovah himself who forgives sins not on the basis of just like a free for all Oh, you know, I have mercy upon you and I forgive you. Let's just forget about paying the debt. It doesn't work that way. He himself pays the debt for you. That's why he can say, for my own sake, because the expression for, for the sake of is a covenant expression, that of a proxy savior. A proxy savior takes upon himself the transgressions of others and appeals to God on their behalf or for their sake. So the words on, on their behalf, on behalf of, or for the sake of, indicates proxy salvation. And that is how the offenses can be blotted out, and under no other terms, both for spiritual salvation and for temporal salvation. And then when the sins are blotted out, you are justified. 
justified for spiritual salvation and justified for temporal salvation or physical protection in the end time. Isaiah 44, I have removed your offenses like a thick fog. Think about the tree of life scenario of Lehi and the fog that people had to wade through holding on to the, the, the iron rod. Because you wandered off in the fog and now you found the rod again because you repented. Your sins like a cloud of mist. Return to me, I have redeemed you. Fog and mist are also terms of chaos, chaos motifs, so it shows that you are wandering off into chaotic paths. Whereas now the Lord is bringing you back into his light. He's dispensing the fog. It also implies that when you sin, the fog covers your eyes and causes spiritual blindness to you. And you're having a hard time finding your way again. And those who don't repent and are in a state of that spiritual blindness may have a hard time ever coming back. Because the more they transgress, the more the fog sits, sets in. Till eventually it takes longer and it's much harder to return. Isaiah 14, Jehovah will have compassion on Jacob and once again choose Israel. Now this is the Jacob-Israel category we've been talking about as distinct from the Zion category. He's working with the Jacob-Israel category to get them to a Zion level, the Zion-Jerusalem level, which we've discussed in Isaiah. It's, it's, that is a higher spiritual level than the Jacob-Israel level. The Jacob-Israel level is what we call a telestial level, and the Zion level, or Jerusalem level, is a terrestrial level going on to a celestial level. The one is a saved state, the other one is an exalted state. Both are Zion levels, but one is conditional and the other is unconditional. The terrestrial level of Zion is a conditional level, and the um, celestial level of Zion and Jerusalem is an unconditional level. It's with a covenant that's forever. So he's going to settle them in their own land. That means they are inheriting covenant blessings of a promised land. And that doesn't come for free. That comes when they become a Zion people in the book of Isaiah. The wicked on a telestial level, the Jacob-Israel level, and below, like Babylon, they don't inherit land. So those who inherit land in the millennial age are terrestrials and celestials. The terrestrials conditionally and the celestials unconditionally. Proselytes will adhere to them and join the house of Israel because then, in that day and age, the word of God goes forth through all the world and many will come in to becoming God's covenant people. But it doesn't just happen by itself. It happens when the Lord's people become emissaries of his word and law. And then it happens. Isaiah 49. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor be smitten by the heat wave or the sun. He who has mercy on them will guide them. He will lead them by springs of water. Now this is talking about those who are sending up to an elect level. Or even, even a Zion level on a terrestrial level. Even them he will guide, but not on, to the degree of the elect. When they retur return from dispersion, from exile to Zion, or to the stakes of Zion, he will lead them by springs of water in his mercy toward them. All my mountain ranges I will appoint as roads. My highway shall be on high. See these coming from afar, these from the northwest, these from the land of Sinim. Shout for joy, O in heaven, celebrate, O earth. 
burst into song on mountains. Jehovah is comforting his people, showing compassion for his afflicted. They're coming to Zion to anticipate the coming of Jehovah in glory. He hasn't come yet. This is all a preparatory work so that the Lord can come to a Zion people who have gathered. They don't gather after he's come. They gather before he comes. And then after that, they continue to gather. The terrestrials continue to gather, but all the celestials will have been gathered. Zion into her stakes. And this is how they gather. They gather through all of the different four parts of the earth, from Sinim, the Orient, China, wherever. It's a joyous event when that happens. It's a time for rejoicing in the heavens and on the earth because now the laborers have come to fruition of all those heavenly ones who've been ministering to us and of all those ones who've lived on the earth and labored toward the cause of Christ to bring this about. So, of course, there's going to be great rejoicing in both heaven and on earth. Isaiah 54. Now, this is the wife who's received back, not the one of the first few verses who's divorced. I forsook you indeed momentarily, but with loving compassion, well, 2,000 years or more? Isn't that, is that just momentarily or something? Uh, yeah, by the Lord's time it is. But with loving compassion, I will gather you up. Now, the idea of loving compassion is like charity. It is, signifies an unconditional covenant with the Lord's people on a Zion level. In fleeting exasperation, I hid my face from you. Why? Because you, you rejected me, your husband. You went after other gods and worshipped them. So, of course, I was exasperated with you. And so I had to reject you for a while till you learned your lesson. But with everlasting charity, that's again a covenant term signifying an unconditional covenant, I will have compassion on you, says Jehovah who redeems you. So the ultimate form of redemption is to bring his people to a Zion level. It's to redeem them from their sins, from a telestial to a terrestrial level, yes. But ultimately, it's to redeem you even to the highest spiritual levels, to bring you up there. That is God's great purpose for this creation, on his creation of us on the earth. Think about that. Think about what that privilege is and how he's constantly caring for us to get us there. As in this case, teacher revelator, Isaiah 44. Who predicts what happens as do I and is the equal of me in appointing a people from of old as types foretelling things to come. So, the people of Israel anciently were living out in their history types of the end time. So, he's appointed those people, the Jews and other ethnic lineages of Israel, as types for the end time, as types for his people in the end time, and as types of things that are going to happen in the end time, because the things that happened anciently with God's people that Isaiah chose selectively to describe and to draw on are an allegory of what happens to them in the end time. So the people in their very history are foretelling what's coming. A new creation, a new Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, a new Assyrian invasion, a new Passover, a new wandering in the wilderness, a new building of the temple. These things are all foretelling the future. 30 of them that I identified out of the book of Isaiah. It's in my books, um, the new one, the Windows and the Prophets of Isaiah. It's all spelled out for you. Be not perturbed or shaken because the times are such that you will, the rest of the world is shaken. 
have I not made it known to you from of old in the history of his people that I not foretell it, you being my witnesses? Israel has witnessed that the Lord has done it this way. And who else can foretell the future that way? By creating a people who are foretelling through their very history what's going to happen to them in the end time. Only God is capable of doing that. It's a proof that he's God. Isaiah 45. Who foretold these things of old, predicted them long ago? Well, such as in the book of Isaiah, right? 700 B.C. Did, I, did not I, Jehovah, apart from whom there is no God? Because you're so infatuated with the other gods, have you forgotten that all this was predicted? You're out of touch. The prophecies of the former events, Isaiah 52, indeed came to pass. But new things I yet foretell. Before they spring up, I declare them to you. Well, when is that going to happen? Because he tells us that the prophets in the end time are not prophesying. They're not seeing, chapter 56 and elsewhere. So he sends a seer this time, <clears throat> chapter, chapter, chapter 28, who is going to predict the future and what he predicts comes to pass. And that's the way people will know that he's a true prophet of God. So these new things that he foretells, he declares them before they spring up, and then when they happen, people see and realize that this is indeed a prophet or a seer of God. 21. Because of this, my Lord Jehovah, or my Lord said to me, go and appoint a watchman who will report what he sees. Because in the end time, his people have apostatized and if they do see anything, they don't report it or they don't see anything at all. So the Lord has to go and appoint a new watchman. And there's the word appoint again. It's a, it's a prophetic calling. The word appoint is a prophetic calling. And then he say, the watchman says, verse 10, to you who know me, that is to you who have a covenant relationship with me, who's to know is, defines a covenant relationship, remember? The people who did not know him and now he knows them, they know him. They run to him, chapter 55. So he knows his disciples, and they know him, who are of his fold, because he is a shepherd of the Lord, like Moses was. To you who know me, I have reported what I heard from Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel. That's chapter 21, where Isaiah, in his day, was a, acted as a type and shadow, or a forerunner, or a precedent of the Lord's end time servant because he too if you follow the word appoint is the Lord's servant all the way through the book of Isaiah we see the Lord appoints 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 him and the word appoint to know these are word links to the servant of the end time the whole book of Isaiah is an intricate web of interconnected ideas and you can't just isolate thing, something and say oh well that's what that is and this is what something else no without connecting and interconnecting the entire book of Isaiah you really cannot interpret even one thing out of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 48. Thus says Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, I, Jehovah, your God, instruct you to your good, guiding you in the way you should go. Good also signifies covenant keeping and covenant blessing. So he's instructing us of how to keep the terms of the covenant, giving us his law and word. The law that's written and the word that's verbal, or can be guiding you in the way you should go. Isaiah 30. O people of Zion, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, 
you shall have no cause to weep because when things get hairy in the end time, they think they have real cause to weep. They're going to go through some horrific descent phases and they're going to be calling upon the Lord day and night for deliverance. But in the end, the Lord knows it all. He's allowing it to happen for their own good. You shall have no cause to weep. He will graciously respond at the cry of your voice. He will answer you as soon as he hears it. The time is coming when things will be turned around. There's a great reversal of circumstances between Zion and Babylon is going to happen. But it has to run its course first, both on the one hand and on the other, so that wickedness can reach its apex and so can righteousness. And the one happens because of the other. Though my Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction for a short time, yet shall your teacher remain hidden no longer, your eyes shall, be see, shall behold the master. So that's his coming in glory. And also his individual coming to you when you make sure you're crowning election. Your ears shall hear words from behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Should you turn left or right? Because God will be with you and the angels will minister to you and the spirit will be in you. 54, which is the covenant chapter. Again, the idea of being taught directly as the Levites were. All your children shall be taught by Jehovah and great shall be the peace of your posterity. 65, before they call, I will reply. While they are yet speaking, I will respond. Not like now. We don't always get our answers right now, right? We, sometimes we feel like we're under the Lord's foot and he is leaving us in this dark place for a while to test us. And you think we're all alone. No, he's right there actually, but we just don't see it and we don't want to believe it. But he is, he's taking us through this trial because we need it. We need to go through it. We need to expiate all our iniquities. Not just our, our sins, we need to be forgiven of. We may be pure of our sins, but we need to be sanctified and purified more and more and more till we become that Zion people. And we can see the Lord face to face. Isaiah 2. Many people shall go saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Jehovah. Now, the word to go up is to ascend, to ascend spiritually. It's physically to go up, yes. But it's also to ascend spiritually. It's the same word in Hebrew, like Isaiah 40, 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 31. They ascend as on eagle's wings. It's the same verb in Hebrew, to ascend or go up. Let's go up to the mountain of Jehovah. So you can't go up there until you ascend to a Zion level, right? Spencer sees in the book Visions of Glory. You could not enter Zion until you became a Zion people, until you became elect. To the house of the God of Jacob, where the temple is built, that he may instruct us in his ways, that we may follow in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and from Jerusalem the word of the Lord, to all the earth. Now this is the millennial context. This is not what's happened thus far. Some people would say, well, that's when, that's when General Conference and people come to Salt Lake City. Excuse me? This is a Zion context. This is the new Jerusalem, or the old Jerusalem, the same thing. Zion and Jerusalem, two centers, two millennial centers. Isaiah is an end-time scenario. We have to get that into our heads. We can't just willy-nilly apply things to ourselves as if somehow we can just take things out of context. And as Nephi says, think we know of ourselves, what it means. Isaiah doesn't work that way. You have to connect it up with everything else going on in Isaiah. 
Jehovah, the divine nurturer. Now, these are all amazing attributes of the Lord, are they not? I mean, put it all together, and these are just selections from Isaiah, just a few selections. Put it all together and say, what kind of God is this that we have? He's truly, he's everything. He could not be more of a God than this for us, and a Savior. Now, we over, <coughs> we've already read part of 55, uh, but this is what we read uh, after this. Uh, we'll read it again in a moment, but at the beginning of chapter 55, attention to all who thirst come for water. Now, water is a covenant blessing, in spite of how obvious it is and abundant it is in our day, because the time is coming when the water will be cut off, and there will be no water. And then you'll realize what a great blessing it was indeed. And you just took it for granted. Come for water. You have no money. Come and buy food that you may eat, because the time will come when there's no food either. Come buy wine and milk with no money at no cost. The Lord provides for his elect free. As covenant blessing, all you have to do is keep his law and the law of the covenant. Why do you spend money on what is not bread? Because if you spend your means on things that are not profiting your salvation, right, then you're actually squandering. And so that brings upon, its, upon you the consequences of you doing that which is separating you from the Lord. And so you've got to come all the way back. And that's not easy. Your labor in what does not satisfy. Hear me well, eat what is good. Covenant blessing comes from covenant keeping. And your soul shall enjoy abundance. You will always have sufficient for your needs. Trust in it. If it's not, it's because you've lacked, not because God is lacking. 40. Is it not known to you, have you not heard, Jehovah is the God of eternity, creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His intelligence cannot be fathomed. He supplies the weary with energy. He increases in vigor those who lack strength. And the rest of it says, well, young men, even young men grow weary. And, and so God does not. But he's the one who empowers us. He's the one who gives us an energy. And verse 31 of this chapter, we see that we can even ascend us on eagle's wings and attain translated state. So where we become uh, unwearying <clears throat> as he is unwearying. 44. And now Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen, he has to keep working with this Jacob-Israel category, which is most of us, right? Thus says Jehovah, your maker, who formed you from the womb and succored you, be not afraid, Jacob, my servant, Yeshurun, whom I've chosen. Yeshurun means straight one or righteous one. And it's in parallel here with Jacob, as one would say Israel, as Isaiah would say most of the time, because there comes a time when there's a lot, a lot apparently to fear. But the Lord, remember, remember the Lord's admonitions all through Isaiah to his people, fear not. Don't fear. Put your trust in me. And it's all about that. It's all about overcoming the fears and focusing so entirely and almost linearly on Jehovah and saying, all that doesn't matter. Everything that's happening is good because it's all designed by the Lord to bring me to him in his presence. That's a beautiful thing. So the fear is good. I mean, the, the temptation to fear is good because if you conquer it, it gets us there quicker. 
quicker than without the fear. 46. Hear me, O house of Jacob, all you remnant of the house of Israel. You have been a load on me since birth, borne up by me from the womb. To tell the truth, you guys have been a horrendous burden, you know. Even to your old age, to Israel's old age, I'm present, I'm here all the time. Till you turn gray, it is I who sustain you all through the centuries, millennia. It is I who made you in the beginning, I who bury you up, it is I who carry and rescue you. Every time you get into trouble, guess who has to bring you out of it? Me, Jehovah. The Lord has to. Isn't that an irony? When do we turn to him most? When, they get, when we get ourselves into deep doo-doo, right? Let <laughs> me turn to him and say, get me out of here, Lord. Well, well, yeah, but didn't you do that to yourself? Well, yes, but, but you think that would get old with him? I mean, all the billions of people, same story? Apparently not, but he does say it. I mean, he's taking it on, he's taking us on. But he does say, hasn't that been easy, you know, for him? 48. They thirsted not when he led them through arid places. He caused water to flow for them from the rock. He cleaved the rock and the water gushed out. Even those transgressors who were complaining there was no water in the wilderness when they came with Moses, he had to provide water for them out of this rock. And so he will again. This is a type of the end time. That's why Isaiah mentions it. It's a new wandering in the wilderness, and water is going to be provided for us, those who go. The wild bees do me honor, the jackals and birds of prey, for bringing water to the wilderness, streams to the dry land. Why? That I may give drink to my chosen people, the elect, returning from exile and from dispersion to Zion. In the end time, the people I formed for myself to speak out in praise of me. Ah, uh, yeah, when was the last time we did that? You know? When was the last time we really bore testimony of the Lord? Is it still politically correct now? Maybe we should consider that. Or maybe we should just hold our tongue in this situation, not say anything. You know? The people I formed for myself to speak out in praise of me? Well, those, of course, are the chosen ones. It's in parallel with being chosen. That's why it says they're valuing the testimony of Jesus. ENT 76. That distinguishes the elect from those who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Isaiah 25. In this mountain will Jehovah of hosts prepare a sumptuous feast for all peoples. In this mountain or in this nation, in Zion, in the actual Zion, not the Zion that we pretend we have now, a feast of unleavened cakes, succulent and delectable. Think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of matured wines, well refined, in this mountain he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the shroud that shrouds all nations by abolishing death forever. So when that event happens, that's where the transition is and that's where death is taken away for the elect. Death will still be going on for all those who do not attain elect level because this is the merit supper of the Lamb or the equivalent, Isaiah's equivalent, and those who are not, who don't enter, are not particulars of this. How can he abolish death? Because he conquered death. He has power over death. And when death has served its purpose as a covenant curse that was instituted with 
Adam's transgression and mortality being the optimum environment for spiritual growth, when it has served its purpose and the day of judgment comes, there's no more need for death. If he would abolish death for transgressors, death would be reinstituted a second time. So death is only taken away for those on the elect level. Get that? Because if Adam transgressed, it brought death. So if someone transgresses again, it'll bring death all over again. Because it's the covenant curse to be cut off from God's presence, spiritually and physically. Chapter 40. See, my Lord Jehovah comes with power. Now this is the day of power, mentioned in the book of Psalms, mentioned by the prophet Joseph Smith, mentioned in other scriptures. Look up the word power all the way through. You'll see that it's an end-time scenario. But it's the day of power that precedes the coming of Jehovah. The kind of power that Enoch exercised in preparing a people of God. His arm presides for him. It happens when the Lord's arm is revealed or bared or raised up. And the arm is the arm of righteousness in this case, which is the servant of the Lord who prepares the way before him. All the way through the book of Isaiah. Look up the word arm if you're in doubt. Look it up in its synonymous parallels with the term righteousness. Look it up in all its synonymous parallels because there you get the definition what Isaiah means by the Lord arm, but by the word arm. His arm presides for him because the others who have been presiding are not doing their job. So he's going to come and preside. His reward is with him. His work precedes him. Jehovah is bringing his reward with him when he comes in glory, but his work the great and marvelous work in the book of Isaiah, by definition, by historical, def by, by rhetorical definition, precedes his coming. Israel has to be restored. The natural lineages, the ethnic lineages of Israel, have to be restored so that they become becoming they becoming a Zion people can welcome him. And who does it? The Lord's servant and his associates. His work precedes his coming in glory. Like a shepherd, he pastures his flock. Who? Well, the Lord, but also the servant and all the other servants of him as well. He pastures his flock, the lambs he gathers up with his arm, with his servant, and carries in his bosom. The ewes that give milk, he leads gently along. The ewes that give milk means that some are birthing and creating this new nation of God's people. 27.2 In that day, sing of the earth, as of a delightful vineyard of which I, Jehovah, am keeper. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, we saw that the vineyard was just a, a local place, kind of a, a confined locale. But now the vineyard has become the entire world in the end time. Of which I, Jehovah, am keeper, I water it constantly, watch over it night and day, lest anything be amiss. Healer regenerator. He bore our sufferings, endured our griefs, though we thought him stricken, smitten of God, and humbled. As I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 53 is shown in a literary structure to be the King of Zion, chapter 52. It's in my book, The Literary Message, which are juxtaposed, the King of Zion being juxtaposed with the King of Babylon in 21 antithetical consecutive verses. Though we thought him stricken, smitten of God, and humbled, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, the price of our peace he incurred, and with his wounds we are healed. Now consider the word peace here because it is Jehovah, as we saw earlier and we'll see again, that he's the one who creates the peace. And so there's another word link 
the fact that this servant, this person in Isaiah 53 is Jehovah. There's an additional witness. And Jehovah is also the healer, as in chapter 6 of Isaiah, and elsewhere, and here is the, the one who heals his people, is this person. So again, another word link to say, well, this is really Jehovah, no other person. He's the one who takes away our transgressions and our sins because he here has paid the price of justice for us. 57. Thus is Jehovah who is highly exalted. His exaltation is what he attains after his descent phase. He's exalted to his Father's throne. So he is highly exalted on that spiritual level. Who abides forever, whose name is sacred. I dwell on high in the holy place and with him who is humble and lowly in spirit, refreshing the spirits of the lowly, reviving the hearts of the humble. Like I said, narrow your focus on him, and he'll be there for you all the way through, even through the hard times. He will keep refreshing you, keep reviving you. There's no need to give up or to yield to fear or anything around you that's going on. 58. The Lord will direct you continually, he will satisfy your needs in the darth because the darth is coming, a want of everything, famine, and bring vigor to your limbs because the promise of healing is part of his covenant blessings. And you will become like a well-watered garden, like a spring of unfailing waters because he will be the spring of unfailing waters in you. Think of chapter 12 where he is the, spirit, the, uh, he is the waters of salvation. Yet shall your dead live when their bodies arise. You're dead. Not everybody's dead. You will say to them, Awake and sing for joy, you who abide in the dust. Your dew is the dew of sunrise, for the, dew, for, excuse me, for the earth shall cast up its dead. First, the elect. The first resurrection. Later, others. Wilderness and arid lands, Isaiah 35, shall be jubilant. The desert shall rejoice when it blossoms like the crocus. Does not say the rose. Crocus, first flower of spring, symbolizes the sudden coming forth of Israel's rebirth in the end time. It's a sudden event. It's not there one day, the next morning it's there. The crocus, the first flower of the millennial dawning of the millennial age. Joyously it shall break out in flower, singing with delight. It shall be endowed with the glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, the glory of Jehovah and the splendor of our God shall they see there. This is when the earth is transformed as well. As the Lord's people transform spiritually, so the earth responds and they do, the earth does also. Again, a covenant blessing. In this case, a paradisical glory that the earth attains because we have brought it to that point. 44. I will pour water on the thirsty soil, showers upon the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring my blessing upon your posterity. The two are happening in concert, the one and the other. They shall shoot up like grass among streams of water, like willows by running brooks. You know, there's going to be so much drought and so much destruction and so much dearth of everything that it'll be really refreshing to see all of this happen after it's all over. 62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain still till her righteousness shines like a light, her salvation like a flaming torch. Who is saying this? 
Well, it is the Lord, in context, it is the Lord's servants, those who are calling upon the, late, the Lord day and night for Zion, for the re restoration of Zion, for the restoration of his people. It is they who are calling upon him day and night. Like 144,000 Latter-day Enochs, all doing this, all committed to the restoration of Zion, the establishment of Zion, the restoration of God's people. They are on a translated level at some point. They get on a translated level. And so, of course, they can do that day and night. They don't get tired anymore. They can be on one side of the earth one moment when it's day here, and they can be on the other side of the earth when it's day there. And they can minister throughout the earth because they can go wherever they want. Till her righteousness shines like a light, her salvation like a flaming torch. Because in the book of Isaiah, righteousness is the servant, but also those who become Latter-day servants. And they are lights, and he's a light. We'll see how the Lord appoints him as a light. And the, the salvation is the Lord himself, who personifies salvation at his coming. So they're looking forth for the coming of the Lord like a flaming torch. You want to light up everything when he comes. The nation shall behold your righteousness, the servant, but the servant who establishes righteousness among God's people and replaces their self-righteousness. And all their rulers, your glory, the glory is the Lord. You shall be called by a new name, that is when you ascend to the, to the celestial level, conferred by the mouth of Jehovah, who is the new name that he personally confers. Then shall you be a crown of glory in the hand of Jehovah, the hand being the servant, a royal diadem in the palm of your God, which is the Lord himself. So you see here, and constantly all through Isaiah, the Lord and his servant, the Lord and his servant, he and his hand, they're working in concert to create an elect people of God in the end time. It's a beautiful thing. You shall no more be called the forsaken one as you have been. Think of the Jews, the Lamanites, and by analogy, the ten tribes in their harassed, persecuted you know, state, driven, hated. And that's going to come to an end when the gospel turns back to them. Overnight, you shall be known as her in whom I delight. Your land shall be considered the spouse, not the reservation, not the res, or places like that where there's nothing out there. You know, the land is going to blossom for them. For Jehovah shall delight in you, and your land shall be espoused. A spouse meaning it's part of the covenant blessing of your relationship with Jehovah, your spousal to Jehovah, as a husband to wife. Jehovah, Savior, Redeemer. Isaiah 33. Jehovah is our judge. Jehovah is our lawmaker. Jehovah is our king. He himself will save us. Yes, he is the law. He's also the lawmaker. The servant, too, is a lawmaker, as I mentioned, like Moses. Moses being a type of the servant. But Jehovah is the ultimate lawgiver who gave Moses the law, right? The servant is also a king, and so are the 144,000 kings. But Jehovah is the king overall, the king of kings. And who is the, he the king of? The other kings, the 144,000 kings. He himself will save us. Salvation is in the Lord only, not in someone else. Even the salvation, the, the temporal salvation that the proxy saviors merit on behalf of others, it's really coming from the Lord. They just qualify people to be saved temporally. 
They don't themselves save them. Salvation comes from the Lord. It all trickles down from the Lord's atonement for transgression. 63. I will recount in praise of Jehovah, Jehovah's loving favors, according to all that Jehovah has done for us, according to the great kindness he has mercifully and most graciously rendered the house of Israel. For he thought, surely they are my people, my covenant people. They've covenanted with me. Sons who will not play false. And so he became their savior. With all their troubles, he troubled himself. The angel of his presence delivering them. In his love and compassion, he himself redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. There's no savior like him. 53. He was harassed, yet submissive. He opened not his mouth, as others would have defended themselves, perhaps, and pleaded ignorance or, or a pleaded innocence. Like a lamb led to slaughter, willingly. Or like a sheep done before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. By arrest and trial, he was taken away. The sheep symbolism harks back to the Passover lamb, of course, the proxy sacrifice, um, all through the law of Moses. By arrest and trial, he was taken away like a like an, this loyal vassal to an emperor. But he's accused falsely. Who can apprise his generation that he was cut off from the land of the living as they should have been cut off from God's presence and from the world with death, spiritual and temporal? He was cut off instead of them. He was even cut off from Father's presence at the very end of his, of his uh, just prior to his death as they should have spiritually been cut off so he was paying the, the double debt for them, both temporal and spiritual. Cut off from the land of the living for the crime of my people to whom the blow was due. He was a vassal to an emperor, his, the most high God, his father in heaven. And he was taking their, he was answering for their disloyalties to the emperor. He took those upon himself. How, how beautiful is this paradigm of the emperor vassal? It helps you to completely understand the atonement and why it needed to be this way. And we say, well, the atonement is beyond our comprehension. No, it's not. It's only beyond our comprehension in the fact that we cannot comprehend the depth of suffering that he went through. But all the legalities of it, the formalities of it, the paradigm, the pattern of it all, it's all part of the Davidic covenant. When you see the covenants, you know, the... The great and abominable church took out many covenants of the Lord. There's many plain and precious parts and many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. They've taken away our knowledge of the covenants. The Davidic covenant is essential for understanding proxy salvation on every level, temporal and spiritual. 45. Israel is saved by Jehovah with an everlasting salvation. This is not temporary. Everything the Lord does is covenants are all permanent. With an everlasting salvation, you shall not be dismayed or put to shame worlds without end. Partake of his salvation, and you will live everlastingly and partake of it throughout endless ages. Twelve. In that day you will say, I, I praise you, O Jehovah, although you have been angry with me because of my own transgressions, right? You punished me, then I turned to you for repentant to repent. Or even after you forgave me, I still had to go through the consequences of my transgression and deal with those things. But now your anger is turned away, you have consoled me. Anger is also a student of the king of Assyria, an alias, so the king of Assyria's rule of the world and destruction of the wicked comes to an end. In the God of my salvation I will trust without fear, for Jehovah was my strength and my song, 
when he became my salvation. There it is. You shall rejoice in drawing water from the fountains of salvation. You will be a spring of living waters within you. 62. The Lord has made proclamation to the end of the earth. Tell the daughter of Zion, the elect, see your salvation comes. It's a person. It's Jehovah. His second coming. Finally he comes in glory. His reward with him, his work preceding him. His reward is the millennial age, elect status, all the blessings of his covenant on a celestial level, exaltation as well as salvation. But his work has to precede him. What work? The great and marvelous work by definition in Isaiah 29 and all through the book of Isaiah, all through the book of Mormon. That's how it's defined there. It's an end time work. Not hasn't happened yet. Look it up. 58. He will come as redeemer to Zion to those of Jacob who repent of transgression. There you have a definition of Zion by parallelism. Says Jehovah. 25. In that day you will say, this is our God whom we expected would save us. We were depending on you, Lord, through all the thick and thin that we've had to go through. We were sorely tempted to give it up, you know, this is, how Je- this is Jehovah for whom we have waited. And believe me, the waiting can be long and he's going to drag it out specifically for our benefit. Let us joyfully celebrate his salvation because now he's here with us. Salvation is him. Let us joyfully celebrate him. 60. Although you have been forsaken and abhorred with none passing through your land, yet will I make, with you, make you an everlasting pride the joy of generation after generation. You will suck the milk of nations, suckling at the breast of kings. Which kings? Well, by definition, the kings in Isaiah, the queens, the kings and queens of the Gentiles, us. A lot of these saints who take on the role of proxy saviors. I was just apprised of a scripture or a, a, a conference talk by Heber C. Kimball who mentioned that these kings and queens of the Gentiles are also us who minister to the house of Israel. Look it up in the Journal of Discourses. I will make with you an everlasting pride the joy of the milk of the nations, the suckling of the breast of kings. Then shall you know that I, Jehovah, am your Savior. He is truly the only true Savior. We can be little saviors, temporal saviors, but he's the one who saved us. Even those who are the little saviors, he saves. That your Redeemer is the valiant one of Jacob. Divine Protector, See, all who are enraged at you shall earn shame and disgrace because, believe me, the entire world almost will be enraged at you and have it in for you. Your adversary shall come to naught and perish. They will gain all power in the world, Satan and his cohorts and his hosts and his lackeys on the earth. They will gain all power, seemingly, on the earth. And they'll all have it in for you to destroy you. It'll be horrendous, you know, opposition and <clears throat> unequal numbers. Should you look for those who contend with you because they're going to, you shall not find them. Whoever wars against you because they're going to shall be reduced to nothing, to non-entities. For I, Jehovah, your God, hold you by the right hand, his servant, when he comes, and say to you, have no fear, I will help you. So from the time the servant institutes his mission, the Lord's right hand, the left hand, of course, is the king of Assyria, the hand of punishment, 
whom the Lord uses as an instrument to punish the wicked, and who is eventually destroyed. But from that time forth, look forth for the, <clears throat> for the covenants of the Lord to be fulfilled and to be taught in their fullness of his law and word. In other words, all of the higher laws that we talked about so much will then be in full force. 54. Those who gather into mobs are not of me. <clears throat> Whoever masses against you shall fall because of you. The word fall is a key word that links, links to the fall of Babylon, chapter 47, chapter 21. They wrote down into the dust. Book of Mormon 2, the great and abominable church. Rachel will be the fall of it. Because these masses are part of that whore. It is I who create the smith who fans the flaming coals, forging weapons to suit his purposes, purpose. It is I who create the ravager to destroy. So the Lord creates him or allows him to gain this power and do all these things to suit the, to suit the Lord's purpose. He suits his purpose, he thinks, but really is the Lord allowing him to do this. Whatever weapon is devised against you, even nuclear holocaust-type weapons, it shall not succeed. Every tongue that rises to accuse you, you shall refute. Now the word tongue, there's two tongues in the book of Isaiah, two mouths, two lips, and so forth. Now, this one is the king of Assyria, the Antichrist. He'll be mouthing off against the Lord and his people and accusing them, as Hitler did, accusing the Jews for just about everything. You shall refute. This is the heritage of the servants of Jehovah, and such is their vindication by me, says Jehovah. This is Isaiah's servants, equivalent of John the Revelator's servants. And their vindication comes of Jehovah when they accept their role as proxy saviors. They are vindicated. The Lord vindicates both them and those for whom they are proxy saviors. Chapter 53, the last two verses. Isaiah 4. Over the whole site of Mount Zion, over its solemn assembly, Jehovah will form a cloud by day and a mist glowing with fire by night. Above all that is glorious shall be a canopy. It shall be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day, a secret refuge from the downpour and from rain. Well, the downpour, of course, is that whole end-time cataclysmic destruction, and there are those who are going to be sheltered from it by this cloud of glory. Where? Well, in the wilderness, of course, where the cloud of glory dwelt anciently as with Moses. 37, I will protect this city. The word city in the book of Isaiah defines two cities, the wicked city that goes into the dust, the Babylon pattern, and then there's the righteous city that becomes the city of Zion. So it's also people. The one follows the covenant with death, and the other follows the covenant of life. I will protect this city and save it. They can be out in the wilderness anywhere. Cities of refuge, cities of light. It can be more than one. It's all one city in the Lord's mindset. And save it because they're all his people. They're all part of his elect city of Zion. I will protect the city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. For the sake of, because each one is keeping the terms of his covenant. This latter-day David, following the, the pattern of ancient David, is a proxy savior to his people. When he keeps the terms of the covenant by keeping God's law, and his people keep his law, and then Jehovah is bound to the terms of the covenant to protect the city and save it. It's the protection clause of the covenant. It does not fail. It cannot fail. You see it in action in the Book of Mormon and the Sons of Messiah. 
You see the father-son relationship between Helaman and his warriors. We talked about it before in the earlier lectures. It's all there. We've covered the ground very well. 43, when you cross the waters, I will be with you. With you is Emmanuel, the idea of Emmanuel. The king, Hezekiah, because he served as a proxy savior, brought the Lord to be with his people during the siege of Assyria, and the angel of the Lord went and destroyed the Assyrian host. So he will be with us through this journey. He will be with all of the elect on the same principle, on the same basis. The idea of proxy saviors like Hezekiah fulfilling their role and vindicating those for whom, to whom they minister. When you cross the, when traverse the rivers, you shall not be overwhelmed. Or you walk through the fire, it shall not be burned. You shall not be burned. Its flame shall not consume you. And fire and flame also pseudonyms of the king of Assyria. So even though he is destroying the world by fire, you can walk right through it because he will have no power over you. You will have power over the elements, as Moses did, as Elijah did, as Enoch did. 52. Oops, excuse me. You shall not leave in haste to go in flight. It will be very organized, very peaceful. Jehovah will go before you, the God of Israel behind you. Read DNC 103, 15 through 20. Same thing, led by one like to Moses back to Jackson County, protected by the Lord before and behind. And his angels as well, of course. 26. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. This is now in the millennial age, the dawning of the millennial age. Our city is strong. Salvation he has set up as walls and barricades because the Lord became their salvation. He protected them by the cloud of glory. Nobody could penetrate it. The Egyptians could not penetrate the cloud to go to the Israelites and harm them. Salvation, the Lord himself, his presence. He has set up his walls and barricades. Open the gates to let in the nation righteous because it keeps faith. So when Zion is established, all prior to the Lord's coming in glory, as in the book Visions of Glory, when Zion is beginning to be established, there are those returning from exile who will be let into the city, all those on an elect level, righteous because they kept faith when the rest of the world was not keeping faith, when the Lord's apostate people of that day are not keeping faith, when they thought they were, like, they were like the Zoramites, they thought they were the elect of God, and they turned out to be faithless. Those whose minds are steadfast, O Jehovah, steadfast through all the ordeal of the end time, through all the times of affliction, horrendous persecution, those whose minds are steadfastly on the Lord, who are overcoming the fears and temptations of that day, which will be exponentially increased, far more than right now. You preserve in perfect peace. And who establishes the peace? The person Isaiah 53. For in you they are secure. They're not secure in anywhere else or by anybody else. Jehovah Divine Warrior. Jehovah the Divine Warrior? Heck yeah. We shall see it now. <laughs> there was that side to him also. Jehovah will come forth like a warrior. His passions arise like a fighter. He will give the war cry, shout the, you know, raise the shout of victory over his enemies. And beginning with chapter 1, who are his enemies? 
first of all, his own people. Those are the transgressors among his own people. Those who are feeding themselves off the Lord's people. And then the rest of the world, the wicked, yes, but beginning with his own. For a long time I have been silent, keeping still and restraining myself. Well, you might say thousands of years, right? But now I will scream like a woman in labor and breathe hard and fast all at once. This is the time of the earth birthing, the Lord's people birthing, Zion birthing, the Lord birthing. Because he is going to give birth to an elect people. I will lay waste mountains and hills and make all their vegetation wither. I will turn rivers into dry land and evaporate lakes. Well, consider that these are all you know, metaphors of God's people, nations, rivers of people, vegetation of people, trees of people, so forth. By a mere rebuke, Isaiah 50, I dry up the sea. That is a metaphor for the king of Assyria, and who is seen river, see it also in chapter 12, and, uh, chapter 11 and others. Chapter 5, he's the sea. And all of those whom he represents, in other words, all the forces of chaos are going to be dried up. His rivers are going to be dried up. Like the book of Revelation where the dragon sends an army after the woman Zion and the earth swallows up this river that he sends out. It's a river, it's an army of people. Their fish become parched for lack of water and perish because of thirst, his armies. It's also literal, of course, first of all literal. I clothe the heavens with the blackness of mourning. I will put up sackcloth to cover them. This is a dark day, a day of trouble for the world. Literal pollution, spiritual pollution, a time of chaos when the, earth, the entire earth reverts to chaos. This is the chaos that precedes the recreation of the earth. It has to happen first. Because creation is always recreation out of chaos. It's the, the earth's descent phase and then the earth ascends to a higher spiritual level, to a Zion level. 59. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate. This is the Lord now. So he, the servant is his instrument. He made salvation the helmet on his head because it's him. He clothed himself with vengeance. That's, that's the Antichrist, the king of Assyria, for a garment. Wrapped himself with fury. That's the king of Assyria as in a robe. According to what they deserve, he will repay them. Wrath upon his adversaries, reprisals upon his enemies. Through the isles he will render retribution. It's worldwide. From the west men will fear Jehovah omnipotent. From the rising of the sun his glory. For he will come upon them like a hostile torrent. The word torrent is a pseudonym of the king of Assyria, chapter 28, impelled by the spirit of Jehovah. And chapter 7 and 8, the torrent is the river of the king of Assyria. So he uses the king of Assyria as an instrument of destruction. When? Well, right before his coming. He's coming like a thief in the night, which is, again, the king of Assyria. The Lord himself is not a thief. It, the, the end of the world is both the destruction of the wicked and deliverance of the righteous. When the wicked have been destroyed, the righteous are delivered, and then the Lord can come. He cannot come in glory to a people who are not Zion. Thus says the Jehovah to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over the prey, when the shepherds muster in full force against him and is not dismayed at the sound of their voice, nor daunted by their numbers, 
so shall Jehovah of hosts be when he descends to wage war upon Mount Zion and upon its hosts. Well, yes, there will be heavenly hosts also participating in this war as in the Armageddon battle. And these things have been seen in vision, and we read some of them, some of those visions in this, in this uh, series of lectures. So the shepherds of the wicked, because the Syrian has an alliance of nations, they all come against him, and he's not dismayed at the sound of them. The voice is the voice of the Antichrist, the king of Assyria. He's a voice always sounding off against God and his people. They outnumber the Lord's people. That's why it says he's not daunted by their numbers. Alone, 63, I've trodden out a vatful of the nations no one was with me. I trod them down in my anger, in my wrath or trampled them. You know, in the end, even his, in his atoning for the sins of the world, he was all alone. And so, because he went through all the punishments due the wicked... He now is the perfect judge to force punishment upon the wicked. You might say, well, that's not fair if you just punish the wicked. If you've never experienced what punishment you're meeting out to them. He knows exactly what he's meeting out to them because he's paid for it. He's suffered it himself. And he's giving them their due, nothing else. If they don't repent, they'll have to go through it themselves. I trod them down in my anger... In my wrath, I'll trample them. Again, anger and wrath, the king of Assyria. Their life's blood spattered on my garments. I've stained my whole attire. Well, when? When he was being crucified and nailed to the cross and when he was in Gethsemane and, and sweated blood from every pore. I had resolved on a day of vengeance and the year of my redeemed had come. We see the day of vengeance all through Isaiah, including chapter 61, which is an end time scenario also. And the day of vengeance is the year of the redeemed. So there you again, you have the destruction of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous. Two halves of the same coin, happening both concurrently in the Lord's day of judgment. It's called the day of Jehovah in the book of Isaiah and all through the prophets. I trod nations underfoot in my anger. I made them drunk by my rage. Again, the king of Assyria, he treads the nations underfoot, chapter 10. He treads the Lord's people underfoot, chapter 28. The wicked of the Lord's people. I made them drunk by my rage. Drunkenness is another metaphor of, the, of Ephraim, chapter 28. When I cast their glory to the ground. Also a, a word link to other parts of Isaiah. See, Isaiah is just totally interconnected. It is just nonsense to take one scripture and run with it to take it out of context. You cannot do that with Isaiah. If you do, you'll have to answer for it. Chapter 2. Men will go into caves in the rocks and holes in the ground from the awesome presence of Jehovah and from the brightness of his glory when he arises and strikes terror on earth. So yes, he's a warrior and he's coming just like an awesome warrior. And the brightness of his glory strikes terror on earth because think of the nuclear destruction in many places throughout the earth. And those, you know... That brightness of his glory is also part of it. Nuclear destruction causes great light, but also his coming in glory is the ultimate glory. But you have it here juxtaposed or in an antithetical parallel uh, with terror on the earth. So 
when he comes in his glory, if there are any you know, wicked people left on the earth, again, they will, they will perish in his presence. But most of the wicked will be destroyed from the earth. That's the king of Assyria's job, and that's what Isaiah teaches. 66. See, Jehovah comes with fire. Again, it's a, it's a metaphor for the king of Assyria. He personifies the Lord fire and sword. And with the fire and sword, the Lord destroys the wicked on the earth. Fire and sword are mostly all in, often in parallel together. So you cannot isolate fire by itself. He comes with fire, his chariots like a whirlwind, to retaliate and fuse anger. The king of Assyria personifies that anger, to wreak with conflagrations of fire. With fire and with the sword, as here, shall Jehovah execute judgment on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many, or most people, the majority. Many is, there's no majority word in Hebrew, so it's, it's most, most everybody. Jehovah and power of his servant. Now this is really important because we cannot leave the servant out of it. The servant is central to the entire end time scenario. You might say that the end time scenario begins with the coming of the servant. Actually, it does not. The king of Assyria, the counterfeit, the false messiah comes first. The counterfeits always come first, just like they did before Jesus' coming. But redemption comes... The redemption of the Lord's people begins with the Lord's servant, his coming. And there are so many verses that all link up together with the servant Isaiah. You see clearly that it's, it's not Joseph Smith. It's, it's an end-time scenario. It's not Christ. It's a preparatory work before the coming of the Lord, which is Jehovah's coming. And Christ is Jehovah. He doesn't build his own temple. He doesn't gather the tribes of Israel and bring them up to his own level. It's all done beforehand. His work precedes him. And I don't know why people find the idea of a servant so threatening. Well, think about it. Why did the scribes and Pharisees find John the Baptist threatening? Because he convicted them of their wickedness. And why did they find Christ threatening? Because he convicted them of their wickedness. And so what, is, what, what reaction are they going to have to the servant? Because he's going to, going to convict them of their wickedness. Why did the professors and ministers of religion of, of Joseph Smith's day find him objectionable? Because he convicted them of their wickedness. He showed them how far they had drifted from believing in the prophecies, from, from getting, you know, getting a distorted view of what God is the uh, Trinity theory and so forth. Yeah, Joseph Smith restored so much that's already in the scriptures. And we're going to see that again. The fullness of truth is going to come with the coming of the servant. And Eliakim, as I said, there are many types in Isaiah of the servant. Eliakim is one of them. And, and watch what it says about him. In that day I will commission my servant, it's a synonym of a point, my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, well, that happened in Isaiah's day, but, you know, the fact that the word servant, my servant, is a word linked to the servant in other parts of Isaiah, my servant, my servant David, and so forth. I will clothe him with your robe and bind your girdle on him. I will appoint him your jurisdiction. So he's going to replace somebody else. In Isaiah's time, it was Shebna, the secretary. And he will be a father to the house of Jerusalem. That is a proxy savior. It's a legal term signifying a proxy savior. It's like Helaman was father to his sons. That's emperor-vassal relationship. He'll be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will invest him with the keys of the house of David. When he opens, none shall shut. 
and he shuts, none shall open. Because he's the latter-day David who replaces ancient David. He's the one that Joseph Smith talks about, whom the Lord raises up, the latter-day David, whom Orson Hyde also mentioned in the dedicatory prayer of the Holy Land. One by the name of David, said the Lord will raise him up. And he will have the sealing power. He will be the one who replaces David in, in DNC 132. Right here. 42. 1. My servant whom I sustain, my chosen one in whom I delight, him I have endowed with my spirit, he will dispense justice to the nations. It's a worldwide mission from the get-go. Justice because there's no justice being done now. So he has to come and restore justice. Where? Well, worldwide, but beginning where? Among the Lord's own people. 55, we read this, I'll read it again in this context of the Lord empowering the servant. Come unto me, let's come unto Christ, or come unto the Lord. Pay he that your souls may live. Because this is the covenant of life, right here. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my loving fidelity toward David. I have appointed him as a witness to the nations, a prince and lawgiver of the peoples. So to come to the Lord, you have to come to him. Because he is the Lord's mediator of this covenant. And he's the one that the Lord's covenant people, the house of Israel, will respond to, as we see in verse 5. When perhaps the rest of the world will not. 52.7 Then shall I say, how comely upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger announcing peace. Peace is the synonym of salvation in Isaiah 53. Peace is the Lord's doing, but he's announcing peace. If it's a synonym of salvation, it's a synonym of the Lord himself who personifies peace, because the Lord personifies salvation. You see it right here in these three synonymous lines. Peace, good, and salvation. He's announcing peace, bringing tidings of good, heralding salvation. Three synonymous lines. Here you see that good, covenant keeping, covenant blessing, is synonymous with salvation, the Lord himself saving you, and, and the bringing forth of peace. So he is the one heralding the Lord's coming, like John the, the Baptist, before the first coming of the Lord, saying to Zion, to the, to the latter day Zion that forms, your God, your covenant God, reigns. He will come to reign among you. He is coming to reign among you. And this is, this is where you have the Lord Jehovah as the king of Zion, right here. Chapter 52, verse 7, which parallels chapter 53, and these, both of these chapters in this synonymous, uh, in this antithetical parallelism with the king of Babylon in chapter 14, show that the, the king of Babylon is the exact opposite of the king of Zion. Whatever it says about one is the opposite of what it says about the other for 21 consecutive verses. And Isaiah embedded this in his, in his prophecy of the literary structure to show that the person of Isaiah 50, 53, 1 through 10, not the last two verses, is this king of Zion. These literary structures have meaning that need to be taken into account. It's part of the way Isaiah prophesied. 48. All of you assemble and hear. Who among you foretold these things? Well, are you, are you used to assembling and hearing? Yes, you're used to assembling and hearing. So let's assemble and hear again. When? Well, in some kind of conference, right? Who among you foretold these things? Foretold what? Well, the coming of the servant, of course. And these prophecies that are now going to be fulfilled. These new things that the Lord is going to declare. 
Who foretold it? Well, the servant does. It is him Jehovah loves. He is one of the beloved because he's on the seraph level. Like John the beloved. It is him Jehovah loves who shall perform his will in Babylon because Babylon is the, the wicked world, or the, the world in its wicked state, the, the wide world, the full entire earth. His arm, the servant, shall be against the Chaldeans as his arm was against the Egyptians, and so forth, anciently under Moses. I myself have spoken it and also called him. So, you know, he calls him. I have brought him, and I will prosper his way. And to, to bring him is a word linked to chapter 46, which we'll see in a moment. But these are all word, link, word links that tie these the servant passages stolidly in with one another. So you cannot separate one servant passage from another. 44. Who fulfills the word of his servant, who accomplishes the aims of his messengers, that will be his associates, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be re-inhabited. Of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, their ruins I will restore. Who says to the deep, become dry, I am drying up your currents. When did that happen? That happened to Moses when the Israelites went through the Red Sea, right? So it's harking to the servant being a new Moses, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Well, that's interesting because Cyrus was a Persian, but Isaiah is an end-time scenario. And so here Cyrus is like a new Moses. In chapter 63, we find the word shepherd applied to Moses in the context of the deep becoming dry. So these are word links to this person, the servant, who is like in Cyrus, who, you know, who said that the temple shall be rebuilt in verse 28, because Cyrus historically commanded the temple to be rebuilt, but he's also a new Moses. So here, Cyrus is not a historical Cyrus, it's a composite of Moses and Cyrus, which is not a historical idea, it's an ahistorical idea, an unhistorical idea. So scholars who get hung up on the word Cyrus here are entirely mistaken. It's not historical. It's part of an end times scenario. And as we saw before, the servant is also a shepherd. He leads the sheep to Zion. You see how complex it is, and yet it's quite simple at the same time. You just have to figure out these links, and then it becomes clear. It's clear as day. And if it's going over your head right now, then just start taking baby steps, put it all together, and you'll get there. 42. I, Jehovah, speaking to the servant, again, have rightfully called you or called you in righteousness or called you righteousness, and I will grasp you by the hand. I have created you. This is, you know, this is a literal handshake of the servant. Created him, created him, or recreated him on a higher spiritual level. Appointed him, this is a divine appointment, or now on a translated level, to be a covenant for the people. So he is the covenant. He personifies that covenant, that Davidic covenant. He is the mediator of God's covenant to his people. A light to the nations. He is a light. He's not the greater light, but he is the light. He personifies a light also. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from confinement, from prison to those who sit in darkness. Literally, physically, in the world, preparatory to the coming of the Lord. Now you can say, well, this is about the Lord. And he releases the captives from confinement. Because if you're conditioning 
and all this, you know, the precepts of men that you have been taught to believe. And this is true. But don't apply the entire prediction of this to the, to the Lord because it doesn't apply. When you look at these scriptures in context, it's all about a preparatory phase before the coming of the Lord. It's all graphic. It's all physical. It deals with the restoration of the ruins and so forth. And that happens and is done by the servant, in the time of the servant. So yes, Jesus does it on a spiritual level. And he personifies all messianic traits on the very highest level. And anybody else who personifies messianic traits does so only in emulation of Christ. But like I said, they are little saviors. But they are saviors nonetheless. And they, he and they, these servants, all of them do this thing. They physically deliver captives from prison. They physically do it. And they lead them to Zion as a, as a consequence. When they have delivered them physically, they lead them to Zion in the Exodus, through the wilderness, by the springs of water. You know? You've got to see Isaiah in its total context. If you don't, you'll just misread it every step of the way. You'll go back to your old paradigm, to your old precepts of men, your preconceived ideas that have no scriptural basis. You've got to make, connect all the dots. That's what requires searching. It is, right who, it is I who rightfully raise him up, who facilitates every step. He will rebuild my city and set free my exiles without price or bribe, says Jehovah of hosts. While Cyrus was a type of that, he released the captives of Babylon, but he was only a type. In Isaiah, he's only a type. The servant is going to do that. So he's a Moses who did that, and he's a Cyrus who did that. 49, he said, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. So that's his job. His job is to gather Israel, to bring the tribes back from dispersion, from captivity, from exile, to restore those preserved of Israel. His, his job is to restore the house of Israel. I will also appoint you, there it is again, to be a light to the nations, a, a light to all of the nations of the world. It's a universal mission from the get-go. That my servant may be, so, excuse me, that my salvation may be to the end of the earth. So he has salvation. He preaches salvation to all the ends of the earth. He's giving the entire earth a last chance to be saved. This is the last warning. This is the servant of Jacob 5 who grafts in the natural branches of the olive tree, the house of Israel, the, the natural lineages. But in the process, he gives the rest of the world a chance to still be grafted into and not to be cut off with the wicked. Remember, the Gentile branches are going to be cut out, the wild branches, us. Thus says Jehovah, at a favorable time I've answered you, in the day of salvation I've come to your aid, because he too, when you read this chapter in context, he goes to hell. This servant too is suffering horrendously from opposition. They're not going to like him. They didn't like Christ, they didn't like John the Baptist, they didn't like Joseph Smith, they didn't like Moses. They didn't like David. Saul was very threatened by King David. So there comes a time when the Lord does answer him and, and reverses his circumstances, him and that of his people. In the day of salvation, that is the, coming of, the time of the coming of salvation, the Lord, I've come to your aid, I've created you, or we created you, appointed you to be a covenant of the people. There it is again. We saw it in chapter 42. To restore the land and reapportion the desolate estates. And this is physical as well as spiritual. 
This is not the Lord himself doing this, no matter what the scripture headings say. I mean, don't be deceived by them. That's why searching is an individual thing. You have to do it yourself. To say to the captives, come forth, and to those in darkness, show yourselves. Because darkness is a metaphor for the king of Assyria. And he, in the book of Isaiah, is the one who takes the Lord's people captive. So it's physical. If it's spiritual, fine. But that's only a secondary reading in the book of Isaiah. The primary reading is all important to Isaiah, and it's physical. You cannot escape that. You cannot just manipulate scriptures to prove some point. If you do that, you're resting the scriptures. uh, 50. Because my Lord Jehovah helps me, now this is the servant speaking in chapter 50, the Lord helps him. And the word help is also a word link. Take it all the way through the book of Isaiah. Because Jehovah helps me, I shall not be disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing I shall not be confounded. And this, of course, is the great example for us individually to do as the servant does because he personifies righteousness and so he shows us the way through all the vicissitudes and challenges of this end time. In fact, there are so many links between the one and the many in, this, in the book of Isaiah, between what, the Lord, what he does and what they do, what the Lord does for him and what the Lord does for them. There's this, this constant link between him and the Zion people. It shows that they're followers of him. Or by doing what he does, they ascend to his spiritual level. He who vindicates me is near. That's the Lord's coming. He's with him personally, ministering to him because he's on that spiritual level. The Lord ministers to him personally. Who has a dispute with me? Well, many are having a dispute with him. That's why he mentions it. Let us face one another because they're not willing to face him. They want to go behind his back and go, you know, tattle on him and Give him bad flag. They want to destroy the messenger. Let us face one another, for goodness sake. Are you so, you know, are you so weak-willed that you're not willing to face up, stand up for what you believe? Who will bring charges against me? Let him confront me with them. Isn't that what the gospel says? If you have anything against your neighbor, confront him personally? Why aren't you doing that? Because they're afraid. They don't have the power and they know it. See, my Lord Jehovah sustains me. Who then will incriminate me? All such will wear out like a garment. The moth shall consume them. So while they're, you know, incriminating him, the Lord is sustaining him. But they're all going to go the way of chaos. Awake, this is 51 now, where the Lord empowers him. Awake, arise. It's almost like rising from the dead because he, he really goes down to the depths of hell. As we see in chapter 38 of Isaiah, Hezekiah goes down to the depths of hell. And he suffers nigh unto death. And uh, so does he. So it is like a resurrection imagery. And it's linked up with Zion and Jerusalem rising from an awakening and arising in chapter 52. Because when he does and the Lord empowers him, he empowers Zion to do so. So again, word links. Awake, arise, clothe yourself with power, arm of the Lord. It's a person, a servant. Bestir yourself as in ancient times, as in generations of old. Well, that harks back to the time of Moses. Was it then you that carved up Rahab, you slew the dragon, Pharaoh? 
Wasn't that you who dried up the sea, the waters of the mighty deep, and made of ocean depths a way by which the redeemed might pass? It's all going to happen again. This very thing. DNC 103, 15 through 20. One like unto Moses. Let the ransom of, Lord, of, of Jehovah return. Let them come singing to Zion, because with the servant's empowerment, these things can now happen. Their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Let them obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing flee away. It's in the end of agony. It's the end of misery. It's the end of weeping. It's now all turned around. It's a glorious day, beginning with the servant. 52.10, Jehovah has bared his holy arm, because he is a holy one, in the eyes of all nations, that all the ends of the earth may see our God's salvation. Because with the bearing of the Lord's arm, the Lord's covenant people are going to recognize him. <clears throat> it says in 50, 55, he's, the Lord makes him illustrious. And he, when he gains that illustrious illustriousness and gains that sealing power and the power of a translated being, that's when salvation spreads throughout the earth to God's covenant people. 41. Who has raised up righteousness from the east? So he comes from the east in relation to Israel, and some rabbis would say, well, he's coming from America. Um, this, is, this is where there was a garden, the east of Eden, right? So in relation to Palestine, this is east. Who has raised up righteousness from the east, calling him to the place of his foot? That would be Palestine. It's a person, righteousness personified. Who has delivered nations to him, toppled their rulers, rendering him as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Because when the Lord empowers him, he has that kind of power. Like Moses, or like Cyrus. He puts them to flight, passing on unhindered by paths his feet have never tried. Or like David, King David, who was a warrior too. I have raised up one from the north, verse 25, who calls on my name. So this, this, you know, it's like I said, there are these links. He calls on the Lord's name. His people call on the Lord's name. <clears throat> the wicked don't call upon the Lord's name. The word links are just operating here throughout everything we're reading. Who shall come from the direction of sunrise. He shall come upon dignitaries as on mud, chaos motif. He makes them like, turns them into mud. Treads him as clay like a potter, because he has the power of Enoch over his enemies. Thus says Jehovah to his anointed, to Cyrus, here's the second type of Cyrus, but also the type of, of a Davidic king, because that's what kings were called in Israel, the Lord's anointed, which literally means his Messiah. Not the Messiah, not the spiritual Messiah, but a temporal Messiah. Because look at it, it's all temporal context. Thus says Jehovah to his anointed, so he's a composite of, of David and Cyrus here, whom I grasp by the right hand, that is, when he gives him that appointment and calls him to a new divine calling, to subdue nations before him. Because his mission <clears throat> is worldwide. He preaches salvation to the entire earth. He prophesies things to come. And those who don't respond, now he has power to lead Israel's armies over them. Like Cyrus, or like Enoch, or whoever else led the armies of Israel, such as David. To subdue nations before him, to ungird the loins of rulers, opening doors ahead of him, letting no gates remain shut. I will go before you and level all obstacles, the Lord will. I will break in pieces brazen doors and cut through iron bars. Because that's where these people are imprisoned. And those are the poor and the, 
you know, the captives that the Lord's servants are going to release. That's what the new Cyrus or the new David or the new Moses, namely the servant, is going to do. As someone who would have prayed from the east, same person, same person in the book of Revelation, the angel from the east, from a distant land, the man who performs my counsel, because others are not performing his counsel, but the elect who follow him perform the Lord's counsel, or another word link. What I have spoken, I bring to pass. What I have planned, I do. No matter how many people are saying, this is not of God, this is not going to happen, it's not part of his plan because we haven't heard it before, therefore it can't be true. He's saying, well, it's going to be true. This is going to happen. Deliverer of his elect. Almost done. 46, I have brought near my righteousness. Well, that's the servant, as we saw. But it's also the righteousness of the Lord's people. <clears throat> when by emulating the servant who personifies righteousness, they become righteous, they become an elect people of God by the Lord's definition of righteousness, right? So they become holy too and are able to welcome him and endure his presence. Those are the people he wants to come to, a people who are truly righteous, pure, perfected, sanctified. Those are his people. Those are the ones in whom he delights. They're the ones who make us joyful. They're the ones he rules over. Not in a high-handed way, but actually he appoints them rulers too, to rule under him. I have brought near my righteousness. It is now not far off. My salvation shall no longer be delayed. Because when the Lord's righteousness, when the servant comes, he's brought near, remember, brought forth or near, then is the coming of salvation. Then is the Lord's second coming. I will grant deliverance in Zion and to Israel my glory as a consequence of the servant's mission. Strengthen the hands going feeble, steady the failing knees, say to those with fearful hearts, take courage, be unafraid. Like I said, there's fear again. See, your God is coming to avenge and to reward, to avenge the wicked and to avenge your enemies for all they did to you and to reward you for your righteousness, for your faithful waiting for the Lord all through this time of difficulty. God himself will come and deliver you. 49. This is the king of Assyria, the warrior. He is the, uh, the, the evil warrior. There's always a, a good and a bad one. The Lord is the righteous warrior. The servant is a righteous warrior. Can the warrior's spoil be taken from him? Read chapter 10 on the king of Assyria being this warrior who takes spoil of the Lord's people. He makes them spoil and tramples them. He takes them captive. Uh, other parts of Isaiah as well. Look, the, look up the word spoil all the way through Look up the word captives all the way through Isaiah. Yet thus says Jehovah, the warrior's spoil shall indeed be taken from him. Remember, this is the guy who conquers the entire earth. And so, of course, he has spoil and warrior and, and, and captives all over the place. Of course, he, he, he conquers them by military force and could do whatever he wants with them. But he cannot, you know, withstand the Lord and his power when the Lord empowers his servants against him. The warrior's spoil who are the Lord's own people, shall be t indeed be taken from him, and the tyrant's captives escape free. I myself will contend with your contenders, and I will deliver your children. So there you have it. Is it the Lord coming physically to do this? No. The Lord sends his servants before him to do it, to, to bring these people out of captivity, 
to school them in his law and word, to bring them up to his divine level, and then the Lord can come to them and rule among them. They're not ready to meet him, even after they come right out of prison, they're not ready to meet him. They still have to go through these different steps to become sanctified, to do temple ordinances, whatever it takes to become a Zion people. They have to be gathered together so they can collectively become a Zion people with whom he can make an unconditional covenant. We can't do that with them individually. He can make covenants with them individually, but collectively they have to come together and be gathered. It's like the people of Enoch. Their enemies came against them, again against the people of the Lord. They became a people. 24. Then shall it happen in the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, or as grapes are gleaned when the vintage is ended. The vintage or the harvest is judgment imagery, and some are going to survive it, survive this worldwide harvest of the wicked, which is the day of judgment. Then will these lift up their voice and shout for joy, and those from across the sea exult at the Lord's ingenuity. Because always you have those near and those far, those near and those far off, those at home and those abroad. And when those from abroad return home to Zion, then they are let in through the gates. And so when this great reversal of circumstances happens, then those from across the sea say, hey, We've been delivered. You guys hear us over there? Yeah, we've been delivered too. You know, it's going back and forth now. And, and say, hey, what happened? This was all a dream. Now suddenly it's over. It's a nightmare. It's gone. And just the Zion communities are left. And of course, the word voice is also a metaphor for the Lord's servant who personifies the Lord's voice. So the lifting up of the voice is also the sustaining of the servant. Because of it, they will give glory to Jehovah in the regions of sunrise, in the isles of the sea, to the name of Jehovah, the God of Israel. So even though the servant does this work, like Moses or, or, or Enoch, it's to the Lord that the glory is given. Then will I lead the blind by a way they did not know and guide them in paths unfamiliar. The darkness confronting them I will turn into light. So the king of Assyria's power, because he personifies darkness, is going to be dispelled and the servant who personifies light is going to be the one who leads them. So they come out of darkness into the light, like the Lamanites who were converted by the sons of Messiah. They were a light to the Lamanites. Same thing. And they brought them also physically in an exodus to Zarahemla. Same thing, same pattern. And the uneven ground make level, because there was inequality among them, these things will not fail to perform. 25. In that day you will say, O Jehovah, you are my God, my covenant God. I will extol you by praising your name, for with perfect faithfulness you have performed wonders. The great and marvelous work, for example. A marvelous work and a wonder. This is it. The restoration of his people. Things planned of old. You have, you have made the city a heap of rubble, that's the evil city, and all its associates, that's Babylon, the wicked of the world, Rubble is a chaos motif. They've been reduced to chaos, to nothing. Fortified towns are ruined. Heathen mansions shall no more form cities, nor ever be rebuilt. For this will powerful peoples revere you, a community of tyrannous nations fear you. Even when these guys, the wicked, die, they go to their, wherever, their hell, and there they see what Jehovah has done. 
and why they were moved out of the way. So even there they will fear him. And from there they will recognize now which side they were on. You were a refuge to the poor. There's the word refuge and shelter again. We saw in chapter 4. For the poor, for who? Well, for his people. A shelter for the needy in distress. A cover from the downpour, like a Sodom and Gomorrah downpour. And shade from the heat. Heat is a pseudonym of the king of Assyria also. When the blasts of tyrants, namely the tyrant particularly, beat down like torrents against the wall. So the torrent is also the king of Assyria and his hordes. Like scorching heat in the desert, you quell the onslaughts of the heathen as by burning heat, as burning heat by the shade of a cloud, you subdued the power of tyrants. So even with all this power that they have, even nuclear power, they cannot penetrate the cloud of glory. It was thwarted by the, the cloud of glory, the shade of the cloud. So the book of Isaiah is consistent all the way through. You see all the word links? Just within the few scriptures that we have been studying today, you see the word links appearing again and again and again, don't you? I mean, how obvious does it get? So if people haven't seen it, it's because they haven't done this, or they don't care to do it, or they don't know how to do it. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, Jehovah, you bring about our peace. Aha. Isaiah 53 reminds you of, right? Even all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. So all that the servant does and the other servants, they give God the glory. He is the one who's the Savior. They just qualified themselves and others for salvation. They did not themselves do the actual saving. And what kind of saving? Well, this is physical salvation here. Beside the spiritual salvation from sin. But the one condition, of course, qualifies you for the other. O Jehovah our God, lords other than you have ruled over us. We've read these scriptures before, but this is the context today. But you alone were you called by name. Their names are forgotten. Have you ever forgotten the name? There are some names you just, you just seem to forget them more than others. Maybe because of the association of ideas, right? But the names of these guys, and we can think of some right now, are ruling the world. Wouldn't you want to forget them? Yeah, in a hurry, right? They are dead. Oh, thank God they're gone. <laughs> to live no more. <laughs> they're going to have their day, but it's going to come to an end pretty soon. And remember, dead is dead. So the guys is talking about here includes a second death. Spirits will not rise up. They will not resurrect. You appoint them to res- rise up and resurrect is the same word in Hebrew. You appoint them to destruction. Ah, they're appointed for a different... Uh, fate, wiping out all recollection of them. So when the earth ascends to a higher spiritual level, everything that happens, as we see in other parts of Isaiah, is forgotten. You don't even remember it anymore. This whole telestial world is, is taken from our memory. You have enlarged the nation, O Jehovah, by enlarging it, gain glory for yourself, who have, you have withdrawn, withdrawn all borders in the earth. How? Well, first of all, because the force, forces of evil conquered the entire world, they withdrew the borders. So now when the Lord's armies recapture the earth from the, for the Lord, from the wicked, from the Assyrian armies, then the whole earth becomes the Lord's. And so there are no borders. All the earth can be Zion. Oh, I thought the other one was the last. <laughs> this, this is the last one, the last category. 
So I guess if you thought in the past you were shortchanged, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm making up for it today. <laughs> 49. Shout for joy, O heavens, celebrate, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, O nations. Jehovah is comforting his people, showing compassion for his afflicted. So who are his people here, his covenant people? The afflicted, of course, by parallel definition. Who are they? Zion. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. Yeah, well, for a time it seems that way. Because you have to go through it. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget a suckling infant or feel no compassion for the child of her womb? Although these shall forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on my palms. This is Jehovah speaking. I have sealed you to be continually before me. Not only are we continually before him in his palms to remind him and everybody else, but we're always before him at all times because he can see all of us, everything about us, every thought, word, and deed, every place we are at. He's there. He's there nurturing us, as we've seen. 51. For Jehovah is comforting Zion, bringing solace to all her ruins. He's making her wilderness like Eden, her desert as the Garden of Jehovah. So in other words, a new paradise. Joyful rejoicing takes place there, thanksgiving with the voice of song. Because joy is the great covenant motif, the great millennial motif. It's the ultimate fulfillment of covenant blessings. Man is that he may have joy. And this is when it happens. 52.9. Break out altogether into song, you ruined places of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. 56. Back to the foreigners and eunuchs. The foreigners, in other words, the Gentile servants of the Lord in the end time. The foreigners who adhere to Jehovah and serve him, who love the name of Jehovah that they may be his servants. There is the connection. All who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, holding fast to my covenant. In other words, holding fast to the servant because he was appointed to be the Lord's covenant and the Lord's covenant in general and all his covenants, of course. These will I bring to my holy mountain, that is to Zion, and gladden in my house of prayer their offerings and sacrifices. Well, when they fulfill their function as proxy savers, they are offering themselves as sacrifices and all of their afflictions that they have to endure shall be accepted on my altar for my house shall be known as the house of prayer for all nations. Thus is my Lord Jehovah who gathers up the outcasts of Israel. I will gather others to those already gathered. Well, who is gathering them? Well, his servants are gathering them. He will send his angels and they will gather his elect. And these are the angels. These are persons, his servants are people on a translated level. 65. Therefore, thus is my Lord Jehovah. My servants shall eat indeed. Now this is the servants by Isaiah's definition, not any old servants. You think we're at, let's get Isaiah's definition because these are the servants on that translated level ultimately. The proxy savers on Mount Zion, the 144,000, the servants whom the Lord of the vineyard sends the one servant to hire to graft in the natural branches in Jacob's, Jacob 5, Zenos' allegory of the olive tree, those servants. If they do what you know, if they do what, what's re- recorded there, then they qualify as those servants. My servants shall eat indeed, while you shall hunger. Who is you? Well, just an anonymous, anonymous category? No, but they have become anonymous because they were his people. 
they were his supposed servants, but they end up persecuting the true servants. And now he just disowns them and calls them you. While you shall hunger, covenant curse. Covenant blessing, covenant curse. Covenant blessing, covenant curse. My servants shall rejoice indeed, while you shall be dismayed. Or I forgot the element, right? Drink indeed, while you shall thirst. My servants shall shout indeed for gladness of heart, while you shall cry out with heartbreak, howling from, from brokenness of spirit. Your name shall be left to serve my chosen ones as a curse, like the names Sodom and Gomorrah, the cursed name, because you became that. Chapter 1 of Isaiah. You became a Sodom and Gomorrah. And my Lord Jehovah slays you, but the servants he will call by a different name. Well, of course, the new name, because they ascend to that seraph level, translated level. 54, the Lord's people. Zion. Poor wretch, tempest-tossed and disconsolate, I will lay antimony for your building stones, sapphire for your foundations. I will make your skylands adjacent, your tabernacles, I mean, your, your gates of, excuse me, your gates of carbuncle and your entire boundary of precious stones. So when Zion is established, it will be bedecked with all of these precious metals and stones that portend and signify the elect category as in the idea of precious stones and semi-precious and common metals and stones. All the common ones are gone. Wherever Zion is, wherever the celestial glory is established, in the earth, there everything is precious. Precious stones. Where, where Zion is not yet established, it will be semi-precious. But the common will be gone. 66. For thus says Jehovah, see, I will extend peace to her like a river. So before, whereas the king of Assyria was the river of destruction, now peace is going to be a river. And it'll enter every particle of us, every particle of the earth. It's a, it's a peace we cannot even conceptualize in our present mortal state because it, it, will, it will enter into every cell of our body, into every molecule all around us as well. It'll put us in harmony with all the celestial glories wherever Zion is established. We'll be at peace with it, in harmony with it. I'll extend peace to her like a river, the bounty of the nations like a stream in flood. Then shall you nurse and be carried upon the hip and dandled on the knees. By whom? Well, by the kings and queens of the Gentiles, who are the proxy savers who bring you up to that spiritual level of a Zion people, these latter-day servants, these latter-day Enochs, forerunners of the Lord's coming. Read the rest of 66, or chapter 60 is another one. It talks about the kings and queens of the Gentiles, so does chapter 49. As one who is comforted by his mother, I will comfort you. Now remember that the mother goddesses have a great part to play in the comfort of God's people. And you will learn more about that as we transcend from a telestial glory to a terrestrial and to a celestial. But it's not manifest in the telestial world. Hardly at all. Hardly at all. Not like it will be. And consider who else is a comforter. As one who is comforted by his mother, I will comfort you. For Jerusalem you shall be comforted. Well, for the old Jerusalem, recreated to a, a new Jerusalem. And for the new Jerusalem, comes out of heaven and joins the one on the earth. And that is the end. This concludes Lecture 16. 
attributes of Jehovah God of Israel. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.